You're listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And when today's guest first joined me here close to a decade ago, he had already had a long and distinguished career in print journalism, first at Newsweek, finally as editor-in-chief of Businessweek. But he wasn't through with journalism yet, as one knows he never will be, for Stephen Shepard went on then to become the founding dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, right on the front line of training a new generation of journalists. Now McGraw-Hill has published Steve Shepard's revealing Deadlines and Disruption, an intriguing memoir of a life in journalism that Walter Isaacson calls a personal and insightful book about one of the most important questions of our time. How will journalism make the transition to the digital age? And I guess that the first issue I would raise with my guest as editor-in-chief turned dean has to do with the degree to which he truly believes that the essence of journalism as we, he and I, once knew it, will indeed make that transition. Do you think it will? I do. You can count me as an optimist. I think we can preserve the eternal verities of the profession, the reporting, the writing, the critical thinking, the ethical values that we grew up with, with all the new stuff, with um, multimedia interactive forms of journalism, delivered on a multiple platforms, smartphones, tablets, computers, and so on, and using social media for distribution. Uh, this is a form of journalism that can be consumed globally. You can walk down the street and read The Guardian in England on your cell phone if you choose to. Um, so I think that, yes, I'm, I'm optimistic, and that's the whole premise of uh, the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism, is that we can prepare students for the new world and still retain the eternal verities of what we what we knew as traditional journalism. Well, then why has there been so much pessimism about that? What are the factors, honestly reviewed, that have led many people to say, look, the old days, they're gone? Well, the old days are gone, but there are going to be new days. I mean, uh, the reason people are pessimistic is they look around and they see their daily newspaper being hollowed out, bureaus being closed, people being laid off. What they don't see is the parallel universe that is growing up in journalism, uh, ProPublica for investigative reporting, uh, Politico for Washington reporting, Kaiser Health News, uh, Huffington Post, all kinds of ways of doing journalism that didn't exist a few years ago. Um, so uh, I, I'm very, very hopeful. You know, something called Inside Climate News won a Pulitzer Prize this year for national reporting. And something called California Watch was a Pulitzer finalist for public service reporting. People aren't aware of that, but they are aware when they see layoffs happening. So I think the perception, the reality is much more encouraging than the perception people have. What's happened to the concept of um, profession? Well, uh, that's a very good question. Um, what has happened to my generation is, is a amazing change to the point where we professionals who took our role very seriously as gatekeepers who help you 
helped filter the news and tell you what was important and came up with new stories that you wouldn't think to ask for uh, on a Google search. Um, we, we have been displaced to some degree by what you know, the people formerly called the audience. Journalism is now not just a product, but it's a process. It's a two-way street, it's a conversation. And anyone can be a journalist, or at least commit an act of journalism. So there's a kind of pro-am, pro-professional pro and amateur kind of blending. And, you know, amateurs are doing a really lot of good work, whether it's in the Middle East, the tweeting of what went on uh, in the so-called Arab Spring all kinds of good journalism is being done who are not professional journalists. And what we're seeing is a blend of the two. And, and, and um, handled and managed properly, it can enhance journalism. Because, you know, a lot of people out there know a lot about a particular subject. And if we can harness that information and um, conform it to the norms of the profession, I think we will have a much better product. That old... Uh uh, I used to, and I think probably I even did it when you were here so many years ago, reading Janet Malcolm and uh, reading that wonderful first paragraph in which she disparages uh, the reporter. Uh, what about the, uh, the reporter and his or her standards? And what about the loss of professionalism uh, that many people uh, think about? Yeah, I mean, we have to worry about that. We have to apply standards to the bloggers. Okay? How do you do that? Well, you, you by selection. You know, you can't get an individual blogger to change the way he does things. But there are a lot of bloggers who do a very, very good job. And it's our job uh, as managers of a, of a journalistic enterprise to find the good ones. Just as in the old world, we had to find sources who were reliable sources. Now we have to find bloggers, and there are plenty of them in, in, in various communities who do very, very good work and reject the work of, of the ones who aren't really meeting high standards. So, But that sounds like licensing almost. No, it's, look, if I'm running a, a product, a magazine now, New York Magazine or Business Week or anything now, I want to use the community. I want to use people who know a lot about a particular subject, whether it's local schools or crime or immigration or health or whatever, in a community. And it's up to me to find the ones who do very, very good work and to curate or aggregate work that's being done around and put it up on my site in addition to the professional work done by the professionals on my staff. That's additive. That makes journalism better. And the people who are doing crap on the Internet, and there is a lot of junk, you don't put them on your site, and people will then come to you because your brand stands for something, and they know when you're aggregating content from the blogosphere, you're making good choices, people who have something to say in a responsible way. How does the audience differentiate between the junk and what's good? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. The burden is much more on the individual consumer of news and information today than it ever was. Before Isn't that an impossibility? Well, it's a responsibility. I don't know if it's an impossibility, um, but people are not stupid. You know, they can read something and say this, the, you know, it, this isn't solid, it doesn't sound right. It's there. And, you know, you get to find who the good bloggers are. You want to follow um, Fareed Zakari or Peter Beinert uh, or, or Andrew Sullivan. You get to know who's good or whose stuff you like, even if you don't always agree with it, okay? And you reject the people who aren't good. The burden is on you. Uh, you know, it's more of a do-it-yourself model of journalism today for the consumer, that you 
can pick and choose, and there's great stuff on the internet. But it's up to you to find the good stuff and not tune in to the best. And we can't regulate that. Look, in the old days, we couldn't stop. Not everybody read the New York Times. We couldn't stop people from reading the Inquirer, you know, and, and reading a lot of junky stuff. And nor do we want to try to stop people from doing that. Um, it, it's, it's the same now. You know, there is, you have to discriminate between what's good out there and what isn't. There are a lot of people who argue it's not the same, it's much worse. Well, it's better and worse, you know, because it's easier for the junk to proliferate. Mm -hmm. uh, that is certainly true. But it's also true that something that's really good, I can send to you and all my friends and say, you should read this. And you might not have known about that piece, but I'm sending it to you with a link. We live in a link economy now, and you will get the benefit of that. Uh, I'm multiplying your access to information. Uh, and I'll be a trusted source of that to you. So when you see I'm sending you something, you trust me, you'll look at that. Um, and it's true, people are going to send you junk. But Steve, uh, I know you're right about that. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right about it. You send me something, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to be impressed with it. I'm going to send it on. Doesn't that mean that the rich get richer and the poor possibly get poorer, that the intellectually knowledge-wise, rich get richer. Aren't you talking about a further and further bifurcated society? Well, it is certainly true that people have to have access to the internet, uh, whether you're talking about this country or around the world. And if you don't have access, you're cut off from this conversation. You're cut off from that viral network of, of people sending you good information. Um, so to that degree, yeah. I but mean, that isn't what I meant. I meant you and I yeah. sit here, you're a dean, I'm a faculty member. We communicate, we link together. But when you turn to the rest of society uh, and uh, what it has accessible to it, all that junk that we refer to, aren't you, don't we have here a device by which those with some knowledge gain more and those whose taste for knowledge has not been developed have less. I guess I would argue the opposite. I would argue that the technology makes it possible to reach people who haven't had as much access to information, who aren't as well educated. I think online education is going to help raise the quality of what we do in the schools uh, and a distance learning uh, for people who are remote from uh, centers of excellence. So I would argue the opposite, that this is a technology that can enhance learning among people who aren't as privileged as we are. I hope you're right. <laughs> God knows that I hope you're right. When I look, though, at what is available to me and to everyone else uh, online, I fear, and I need to, to raise another important sure. question, which I'm sure you have raised with your students. Uh, at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, but what about the privileges that have uh, historically, not, not that they've always been agreed upon, the privileges we've basically uh, assumed the journalist, the recognized journalist has, do those privileges go with the public journalist, those many, many, many others who get involved in reaching us with the news of the day? 
Uh, yes, to some extent. I mean, before in the old world, we had our bylines, but we were mostly associated whether he writes for the New York Times, he writes for the Wall Street Journal, he writes for Business Week. Um, and now individual brands are becoming a little more prominent. People will follow individuals instead of following the publication they look for. They, were, they tend to read or would have used to read. So I, I think that the privilege um, is in a funny way um, more accessible to people, that, that I don't have to work for a large institution to be a voice on the internet. And to the degree I'm good, and can reach people, and people like what I'm doing, I become a brand. And um, so I think that that privilege is, in a, in a way, bestowed on more people now based on what they're doing, rather than people who are just working for an institution that is world famous. The legal, legal approach to reporters' privilege, you're saying you're not concerned about this? Uh... Well, I think this is a very difficult area, because if anybody can commit an act of journalism, as I like to say, uh, aren't, aren't they uh, entitled to the privileges of being a journalist, the shield laws, and so on. No one knows the answer to that. And I think the only way we can approach it is to say, we shouldn't talk about journalists as individuals. We should talk about acts of journalism, which are recognizable, and that's what should be protected. So if somebody no one ever heard of writes a piece, and the piece is journalism, uh, then it deserves some protection. But we're just beginning to think through how we apply the libel laws and the privileges that the journalists have in our society to this new world, and we're not there yet. And you see some of that with the NSA stuff. Who's a journalist? You know? Right. That's uh, yeah. who should be considered a journalist. Well, I, my definition is somebody who um, uh, doesn't have an axe to grind, is not coming at it. Uh, from an activist point of view. He may have a point of view on a particular story. Uh, he might be an editorial writer. Um, Does but, not have an activist point of view? Where, well, where do we put Paul Krugman then? Well, journal, uh, well, he's a columnist and has a point of view, is entitled to have a point of view, and he works for a journalistic institution called the New York Times, fine. No one would say he's not a journalist or his opinion shouldn't be protected, okay? Um, but I, you know, so he's, he's a, intellectual activist. He's not leaking government documents. He's not on a crusade. Well, he is on a crusade, but it's an intellectual crusade to persuade people that certain economic policies are better than other economic policies. Um, so these are tough questions, Dick. I mean, I, I wouldn't I, be asking them of you if they the answer, But tough. the traditional uh, definition of a journalist is somebody who is approaching something neutrally. That is not that the story has to come out neutral. It can have a point of view, but he's going in trying to find out what the right point of view. He's not bringing it a priori because he, he's an ideologue of left, right, whatever. Um, and that's generally the definition. And uh, it can be opinion writing. It can be analytical stuff. It doesn't have to be AP on the one hand on the other kind of journalism. Journalism is a spectrum. There's all kinds of stuff from radio reports and wire service stories to daily newspaper stories to weekly magazine stories to monthly magazines to books to encyclopedias. You know, that, all of that is a form of journalism. Um, and that's what needs to be protected. Um, and, and we have to define the act of journalism rather than the person uh, as a journalist. Uh, are you as most... I guess all the journalists who've been here um, 
No, not all. Some exceptions. Are you going to be one who rejects the notion of the old news council, uh, the idea of making this as much of a profession with um, standards that have to be, and I'll use the word carefully, enforced? Uh, I think when you get talking about standards for journalism, you run the risk of running afoul of the First Amendment right that anyone can express a thought. Um, I think standards have to be voluntary. Uh, when I was editor-in-chief of Business Week, I was the president of the American Society of Magazine Editors for uh, two years. And we set standards on certain advertorials that magazines were running and we, we didn't want the reader to be confused as to what is paid advertising and what is the editorial voice content of the magazine. And we set standards. But we didn't say to anybody, you know, you, you, could, you had to um, uh, adhere to these standards because we had no authority to do so. And it would be unconstitutional to tell somebody what they could print or not print. Um, so, but you, you, know, you can establish professional standards and best practices do spread. To all publications? Of course not. There was always junk and there will always be, will be junk. But the predominant number of magazines that we dealt with adhered to the standards. And they were happy to have standards because it said this is not a best practice. You don't want to confuse the reader as to what's advertising and what isn't. And we did very well. So I would say when it comes to standards, they should be, we should have best practices, but they, they have to be voluntary. Uh, in the school, <clears throat> yeah. Um, in terms of uh, the electronic media, uh, what have you done with questions of, um, oh, a fairness doctrine, things like that? Well, you know, the fairness doctrine doesn't exist on television anymore. Uh, what we try to tell people, we teach fairness as one of the verities of journalism. You've got to hear from multiple sources before you make up your mind. You have to fact check. You know the usual things. They're subject to editing, uh, all of the all of the things that go into making professional standards of journalism, and we teach that, and we try to explain fairness, uh, which doesn't mean on the one hand on the other. It just means listening to all the sides of the argument, um, uh, considering what is right, making the case if you want to have an analytic point of view in the story buttress it with evidence, recognize there's another side, but make your point in a way that it becomes credible to the reader. We read this stuff all the time, and I know when I'm reading something, this is a fair piece because he recognizes another side of the story. He wants to argue this side of the story, but he's buttressing with all kinds of evidence, and he's quoting reputable people, uh, and it has a tone of fairness even if he's taking a position. In, as a journalist, have you felt over the years that the um, fairness doctrine, we have every reason to miss it? <laughs> well, you know, it existed at a time when there were, you know, just a handful of television stations. Mm -hmm. And now we live in a world of infinite content. And uh, the theory is that everything gets balanced out because it's all out there. And a, and a fairness doctrine, you couldn't apply to all the possible uh, sources of information. You can apply it to broadcasters who are licensed by the federal government to use the airwaves, and that's what we did in the old days. But that's a very small percentage of what goes on now. Would you make the choice of uh, applying it to others 
who have larger audiences electronically? No, I think that the broadcast stations were were a special case because, because they, they were licensed. Because they use public airwaves and were licensed. It's the one form of content that has been regulated that way in this country. And that they still are licensed, obviously, but they are a smaller part of the ecosystem of information today. So no, I wouldn't try to apply that to the rest of people out there trying to do reporting and writing. Even though fairness is certainly, uh, as one watches, or fairness and balance uh, on a large screen uh, is not terribly often to be found, or its violation is often to be found. You know, it was ever thus. I, I just don't think that the technology in the new world has made that problem uh, much worse. Because for every example of bad, unfair, uh, commentary that you see on the on the web there is so much more that is really really good and again it's up to us to f separate the uh, the good from the bad well when you say but us, you can't have you know a fairness doctrine applied to every reporter under the sun who's trying to do a good job not if by re reporter you mean anyone who wants to uh, scribble his views or her views or use the uh, digital media yeah, uh, look, people go on the air, and now, I mean, there's talk radio that has a strong political slant, usually to the right. I wouldn't say they couldn't do that. I would just try to make sure that there are other outlets that are giving you another point of view. So um, I, I, when you get to government regulation of this new world, or even of the old world, I get very nervous because I think that they will make it worse, not better. Why do you th say that? Is this just an old hat notion of somebody who's trained as a journalist and has that First Amendment, First Amendment? Well, part of it is visceral, absolutely. You know, uh, we live in a society where we have great freedom. And I've always said that with that fr freedom comes great responsibility. And one of the things we have to be responsible about is accuracy, obviously, fairness. Truth is the best we can find it. Um, and, you know, with some sense of the public interest in mind, we are serving an audience. Serious journalism, which is what I'm concerned about, serves an audience. And if you have that mindset and the ones we grew, we grew up with that, that's hard for me to give up. I mean, I think I take that very seriously, uh, my well, responsibility as a journalist. I'm fascinated by the emphasis you place upon the responsibility of the consumer, the viewer, the reader rather than those who produce the material? Well, both. I think, I think the main difference between then and now is there's more responsibility on the consumer because there's much more out there now. There are many, many, many more outlets for uh, information, let's call it, uh, than there were before. The responsibility on the producers of information is pretty much the same, okay, the professional standards that we've been talking about. But what is new is that the user has to take more responsibility uh, for consuming in a, in a good way. And how, we can't enforce that, obviously, but how, we, we can educate consumers. I think all these uh, classes and courses, Stony Brook has a very good program to educate a lot of people in, in news literacy, which is, you know, how should you read a newspaper or listen to a television show? How do you determine what's good information and what's propaganda and what's spin? 
you know, what goes into it? You know, how much background information are they providing? How do you discriminate between good and bad? We need news literacy in this country. We need to educate people on what content is in this day and age and how to recognize good uh, from bad. What do you consider, we just have a couple of minutes left, what do you consider yeah. the, the major challenges facing the schools of journalism? It's to um, combine the traditional world, the eternal verities, I call them, with the new stuff in a balanced way so that journalists come out with the traditional skills and the skills in the, in, the, in the new world. I also think it's the responsibility of journalism schools to get active in thinking about business models to sustain quality journalism in the digital age. The problem, as I see it now, is not so much the journalism uh, out there today. There's more journalism being done on more platforms by more people than ever before. The problem is how do we support it? What's the business model for, for not just the New York Times, but new inside climate news, new websites? You know, we need to figure that out, and I think it's the responsibility of the journalism schools, CUNY in particular has done this, to try to find out, uh, explore new ways of supporting journalism, new business models. You emphasize that matter of yes. business models in deadlines and disruption. You emphasized it in a recent speech. How successful are we being? Well, we're seeing a shift in the business model from support by advertising. You know, in the old days, advertising paid about 80% of the, of the bills for print publications, newspapers, magazines. That was very typical. And 20% came from the reader. Now we're seeing it shifting to more than 50% is coming from the reader. Some of that is because of the collapse of advertising. And mm -hmm. print, but some of it is because readers are now starting to pay for content. The New York Times has is, is got 700,000 people paying upwards of $200 a, a year for content. Uh, these are people who don't subscribe to the newspaper, but they want a digital version of Times on their smartphones or their tablets or their computers, and they're paying. It's a new revenue stream to the New York Times. It's probably $140 million a year that didn't exist three years ago. So the business model is changing. And I know from the book and from what you've written more recently, you believe it will work. It will work, and it has to work, Dick. Steve Shepard, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash open mind.